Well, if you're here for the first time today, it will help you to know that we are doing a, a study in the Gospel of John. Now, it's, it's preaching on Sunday morning, but it's, when you're working your way through the Gospel of John, you're having to study. It seems so simple when you first approach it. And then when you get into it at all, you recognize there is a great deal of depth in this New Testament book, which probably has the simplest grammar, the simplest vocabulary in the New Testament, in, in the original writing. But the thoughts are profound in, gospel, in, in the Gospel of John. We learned very early in this series that the introduction to John, known as the prologue, which is John 1, 1 through 18, pretty much sets uh, the stage for the entire, entire book and every single thing that you're going to investigate later in the book will have already been introduced in the prologue. I had picked about four or five verses out of the prologue to connect them with today's message, but it's a big chunk of text and there really wasn't time uh, to, <coughs> to do that. But just know this, there are several tight connections between John 1, 1 through 18, and today's text, John 5, 19 to 47. Both passages are telling us in summary that Jesus is God. He came to earth to save those who will believe in him. The title of today's message, Jesus is God, could have been the title for just about any message we've done so far or any message going forward in the Gospel of John. I think you'll see why I chose the title for this text as we go along. Here's what J.C. Ryle had to say about John 5, verses 19 to 47. Quote, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it is one of the deepest things in the Bible. That's a pretty stout statement about this text that we're going to read today. Especially when you consider all the major discourses in all of the Gospels. Sermon on the Mount, Olivet Discourse, the I Am places where we're coming to in John. We get to John 6. Next week, Ricky is going to introduce John 6 where the, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And then afterwards, I'll be preaching the following week, Lord willing, and introduce the first I Am statement in the Gospel of John. There's so, there are so many profound thoughts in all the Gospels. For Ryle to say that <laughs> causes us to sit up and pay attention to what we're going to read today. And although we could spend weeks in this text, let's just consider this an overview of all that is to come. There are three prominent themes to look for as we examine this passage, although uh, the divisions are not as clean as we may prefer. And by the way, this is one of the things I was thinking about as I prepared this message is, look, either you give an overview and just put some structure there for you to put the meat on later, or we spend five weeks here. So I chose the, the former, 
And, and there are three themes, though, as we read through that you need to be looking for. First, Jesus' relationship to the Father. Second, Jesus' role as judge of all people. And three, the witnesses that verify Jesus' claims of divinity. So these three themes are going to be prominent in the text today. You'll find them as we go. Since Jesus' comments in John 5, 19 to 47, are a response to the Pharisees' challenge to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath that we read about last week, our initial reading today will be from last week's text, John 5, verses 16 to 18. You remember the story, he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda who went and told on Jesus for healing him. Imagine that. But the man had been Lame for 38 years, Jesus healed him, and it happened to be on the Sabbath. And so the, the Jewish leaders challenged Jesus, and verses 16 through 18 of John 5 uh, tell us what exactly happened between them. So it's our custom to stand for the reading of Scripture, and if you would please stand as John 5, 16 through 18 is read. And this, the, the healing he's talking about, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So, what's he saying? I'm God. My Father works on the Sabbath, the Jewish people accepted that, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we affirm that Jesus is equal with God, that Jesus is God. We affirm that he is Lord and King over our lives. And as we read this text today, which can be rather complex, I pray that you would make it easy to understand. It will also be difficult to apply the lessons that we learn from this text. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. So open our hearts and fill them full this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. So in response to the accusations that the religious leaders hurled at Jesus because of his healing on the Sabbath, he now defends his claims of divinity in an extended monologue in which... He accuses his accusers of a failure to pursue and recognize the truth. So Jesus is accusing his accusers of a failure to pursue the truth. They thought they were all about truth. And he said, no, 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 you've missed it altogether. <clears throat> you haven't pursued truth. You don't recognize the truth 
when it is right before you. So Jesus begins with the phrase that he will repeat twice more. Truly, truly, or literally, amen, amen, I say to you. In other words, this is important. <clears throat> Pay attention. He immediately testifies in this text that he is not a rogue prophet speaking of his own accord, but rather he sees everything the Father does and he does the same. Why? Because the Father has an intimate love for the Son and the Son is in perfect unison with the Father. This is very important. Think about this. To us, verse 20 may sound like the Father loves Jesus and so he's going to, hey, hey, come here. I'm going to let you in on a little secret because I love you so much. That's what it sounds like to us. But to the people that Jesus was talking with, here is what Jesus was saying. I know what the Father does because I am God. Even though the Father and I are two persons, we are one God. It is God whom you are accusing of breaking the Sabbath. Tighten your belts because God is going to charge you with being so arrogant that you're unable to recognize him when he stands right before you. This is what they understood. It doesn't sound like that to us. But this exchange is exactly the way the rabbis would interact with one another. And that's why we say, what? Sometimes we're looking in Scripture and we're like, what? They got upset about that? Yeah, they understood what was at stake and what was going on. Think about this. If Jesus did anything different than his father did, he wouldn't be God. He didn't come and say, well, I know, Father, but I'm going to improvise. I think I'm going to do things my way. No, they're in perfect unison. Three persons ultimately in the Trinity, one substance, and they do it alike. Now, here's what D.A. Carson says. Granted the incarnation, if we, if we acknowledge the incarnation, it is difficult to see how God made flesh could reveal himself in any other way. That makes sense? Granted the incarnation, it is difficult to see how God made flesh could reveal himself in any other way. We might read these texts and say, well, there seems to be like God has given Jesus this privilege and so God must be superior to Jesus. God is the architect of all that exists and of the plan to redeem fallen men and women. But Jesus is the center of that plan. And he is glorified in all the Father's plan. The religious, religious leader surely missed who Jesus was. So Jesus told him at the end of verse 20 that he would do greater works than they had already seen. He was pointing, I think, to the resurrection of Lazarus, which would be impossible to refute. And you cannot refute that a man who has been lying in the grave for four days dead, as a doornail, as we would say, wrapped up. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Who can do that? Only God. And you can't deny that he's God unless you... Don't believe that he's God, and then you'll find a way to deny him. 
Throughout this text, both Jesus' equality with God and his submission to the Father are stated without apology. Again, the Father is the architect and Jesus is the center of the plan to redeem fallen men and women. With creation distorted by the first human beings, the Son comes as the second Adam. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? And come behold the wondrous mystery. I love songs that talk about second Adam. Getting right what Adam had gotten wrong. And dying is the perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus is God. And as the son, he thinks and acts the same way the father does. While being in perfect submission to the father. In verses 21 to 23, we're told that Jesus raises the dead. That he grants life and renders judgment. Jewish scholars believe that raising the dead was restricted to God alone, although when Elijah raised a man from the dead or a person from the dead, he was seen as the representative of God. But they're like, this is a one-off. This isn't happening again. Only God can raise the dead. Exactly, Jesus said. And in, if he had been alive in the 21st century, he would have said, wait for it, wait for it. You'll see it. Furthermore, Jesus said, the son has the power and authority to to raise the dead and grant them life. But he also has the authority to render judgment on those who do not believe. The conclusion at the end of verse 23 is obvious to those of us who believe. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now look, I, I told this to the, to, to the group before church. and If I think of something, I'm going to say it. That's what I, gets me in so much trouble. I'm going to say it anyway. A lot of the Christian movies that are out today that people are just so taken with honor the Father, but they don't honor the Son. And although it's an entirely different thing, than what's going on in this relationship with Jesus. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. It's not that big a deal to talk about God, but when you talk about Jesus and you talk about Him being the only way to heaven, that's going to bring persecution. But you know what? We must. Now look, if you're in a witnessing relationship with someone... I understand most witnessing relationships today start with worldviews. And sometimes it's a process. You don't, you know, have to give the entire gospel the very first time you talk with someone. But if you don't get there eventually, then you've not really said anything meaningful about eternal life. Who is Jesus? He is God. And his reason for coming to earth is to save those who believe and to judge those who do not believe. So, your eternity turns on this question, which is based on verse 24. Ricky prayed this morning, Lord, some here don't believe. He didn't say some may not believe. I thought, how interesting knowing what I was going to be coming to at this point in the sermon. The Holy Spirit led him to say that. So this is how the Holy Spirit led me to write this. Your eternity hangs on this question. 
Do you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that your only hope of a relationship with God is a relationship with Jesus based on his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf? Pride often keeps men and women and boys and girls from Jesus. Please do not let that be your story. In verses 25 to 29, Jesus continues the themes of resurrection and death to life and judgment. The, 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 the theme of death to life and also judgment. There's a sense all the way through this text that that life in Christ is an already not yet experience. It's, it's going to be something one day, but it's already, we already have eternal life. When we believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that He lived, died, He was born, lived, died, buried, and resurrected for our salvation and justification, from that moment we possess eternal life. Even so, while we enjoy the fruits of relationship with the Lord, it is nothing like it's going to be when he returns or when we pass from death to life at the end of our days on this earth. And though you may be thinking, you know, if I were trying to say that, I don't think I would have made that argument exactly the way Jesus did. I, I understand but I, I'm sure we would all acknowledge two things. One, we're not God, as Jesus was and is. And, and we don't know the culture and the context of the people he was talking to. So when you begin to understand that, you get, oh, they were getting exactly everything he was saying. That has to be explained a little bit to us. That's okay. It's the beauty of God entering time, entering our world at the right time, Galatians tells us, at just the right time. The Lord came to earth. Even as Jesus promised the blessings of eternal life, he was not saying, hey, look, life's not all that bad, but if you believe me, it will be really good. Instead, he spoke of a day when every person will come out of the graves either to eternal life or to judgment and eternal punishment for their sins. And you can't tell who's going which way based on whether a person does good things or bad things. Because it's about faith. Now, faith will lead us to live a good life. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But if a person is very good, it does not necessarily mean these people that Jesus was talking to were the best of people. If they didn't have a relationship with God because they refused to acknowledge him as the son of God. We are all sinners at birth, but only those who have been granted life by the Son will live. Now, don't be thrown by John 5, 29, which talks about some uh, who have done good will go to the resurrection of life, and the bad will go to the resurrection of judgment. Because it, he, Jesus is going to tell us in John 29, 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Ultimately, it's the only good work that, is, it, it, that matters as far as our relationship with God. Do you believe or do you not? That will produce numerous good works, but you have to start in belief. Why 
didn't Jesus just say it that way? Again, specific audience that understood exactly what he was saying. Jesus' hearers were either forced to submit to him as Lord and King by faith or to eliminate him. They needed to kill him because he was getting too big of a following and they couldn't just pass this off. This man's crazy. Too many people were believing and their lives were being transformed. We know what the religious leaders chose. Today it's your turn to choose yes or no to Jesus. Just in your heart right now. Just say, I say yes to Jesus. I acknowledge all of that. I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died for me. Oh, Lord Jesus, save me. I would love it if you would tell me after the service, hey, I just want you to know, I did that. I called out to Jesus this morning. In verses 30 through the end of the chapter, Jesus presents a list of witnesses to support his claims of being divine, of being the Son of God. In verse 31, he acknowledges that his own claims of divinity are not valid if that's all that exists. Essentially, that's what he means when he says, it's, if I alone bear witness, verse 31, about myself, my testimony is not true. Some of your translations say it's not valid. There's a little more to all of this, but that's essentially what Jesus is saying. The Old Testament requires two or three witnesses to establish something as true. So he's saying, look, I get that, but I'm about to tell you that there are a lot of proofs that back up my claim that I am God. There's much, I'm not going to say because of time, but again, get these down, go back and look at them. There are five witnesses that Jesus mentioned, uh, and they were this. First of all, he talks about John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus was not as interested in human testimony as divine, so he didn't dwell long here. That doesn't mean John the Baptist's uh, witness was not important. It very much was, and the Gospel of John makes a big deal about John the Baptist. But Jesus said, you liked him for a little bit, then you just let it go, so... I know that's not going to mean that much to you. Then he talked about the father himself. And he speaks more about the father's testimony of who Jesus was than he does anything else. And that tells us something else. He gives all these other identifications uh, or, or proofs of his claims. But ultimately, we receive Jesus by faith. And they were going to have to do the same thing. But he was saying over and over, my father knows who I am. And he testifies. Jesus works, verse 36 of chapter 5. Now, this is a really powerful witness. You may not have ever thought about this before. If you think about all the miracles in the Bible, have you ever recognized that they are in clusters? They're not just all the way through. They're random miracles here or there but they start with Moses and what was Moses delivering? The word of God and the miracles were there to show this is serious business, you better listen to this word and then the prophets, David Solomon, those guys 
there were no miracles going on in that day. I mean, there were some amazing things that happened in battle that God directed things as they were, but going beyond the bounds of natural um, activity, God didn't have a lot of miracles. The prophets, when the word of God was scarce, especially in the northern kingdom, during the time before captivity, uh, miracles, Elijah and Elisha, but those were limited. Then when Jesus came, he pointed to the miracles, and he'll say later, if you don't believe for anything else, believe for the work's sake. Look at what I'm doing. But they found a way to say, no, 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 that's not, this is some kind of anomaly. But Jesus did so many miracles that John calls what? Signs. To point to his authority. So Jesus works. And then in the book of Acts, as the church was being established, it was another time period of miracles. Four, Scripture, 539 and 40. All Scripture points to Jesus. He says so in our text. I'm going to spend just a little bit more time on verse 39 in a few minutes. And then Moses. Now this could just as easily, just as easily have been 4A. Unless, when Jesus talks about Scripture and then he goes to Moses, maybe he was chiding the leaders for elevating Moses to godlike status so that they missed just, what, who are you greater than Moses? Who are you greater than David? Who are you? They had elevated people and Jesus had just gotten through telling them, Scripture was pointing to me all along. You've missed something big. So here's the way we're going to do it. Just read John 5, 30 to 47, and look for these witnesses as we go. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he's just essentially saying, I'm not a rogue prophet. The Father and I are in unison on this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true or valid. There is another, another, in verse 32, I didn't get quite through that one. There is another who bears witness about me. He's talking about God the Father. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Big emphasis all the way through the gospel. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to do or to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search 
the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. You would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So in preparation for our time at the table this morning, I want to give five points of application that originate in the text but, all, but which also find their place in the rest of Scripture as well. First, as Jesus is one with the Father, so we are united with Christ. We ought to live as Jesus lived, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, look, if we're playing an imitation game only, if we're just saying, I want to be like Jesus, and we're trying to do it in our own strength, we've missed the whole thing. We've missed everything that Scripture teaches. We cannot do it in our own strength because we very quickly make it about us rather than Jesus. The term Christian was used only three times in the New Testament. That's how we identify followers of Christ today. Only used three times, twice uh, that term was used in mockery of those who followed Jesus. On the other hand, there are well over, well over 100 references that inform the believer of her union with Christ. When we get to John 17, Jesus refers to our union with the Son and the Father in breathtaking terms. Terms that I've, I've never been able to get my head around, but I'm, I just stand amazed. This union that Jesus talks about with the Father is going to be extended to us through the, through the Holy Spirit. And this beautiful life in the Trinity is associated with us in such a way that we ought to live like Jesus. Remember, when you are tempted to sin this week, you are united with Christ. He will give you victory over that sin. Second, God loves us. And that is amazing. We ought always to please God Rather than men. You know almost every time that's talked about in scripture. It's in connection with the gospel. It just hit me as I'm just talking right now. It's almost always in connection with the gospel. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 1. We are always to please God rather than men. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to please God not men. And I'm going to preach the gospel 
in its, in, in its purest form. That Christ died for sinners and that only through Jesus are we saved. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything else equals judgment, condemnation. Jesus alone saves us. The religious leaders were so concerned about pleasing one another that they had no room in their hearts to please God. You'll remember from John 4 that Jesus told his disciples that his food was to do the will of him who sent me. They were saying, Jesus, don't you think you ought to do this or that? And he's like, here's some food. Don't. He's like, look, more than anything else, I want to please the one who sent me. But here these guys are. Anybody been guilty of this this week? You say something, do something, put something on social media, and you're thinking, I bet they'll like that. <laughs> bet that one gets a lot of like. I bet that one, I bet that went over pretty good. Maybe one of the good things in our day is that casual Christians, which may be an oxymoron, are being weeded out of the church. Look, the wheat and tares are going to grow together until Jesus returns. But the more difficult it is to live for Jesus in whatever culture we have been placed, the more serious the believers you're going to find in the church. So ask God to give you a heart that pleases him. Third, You've heard this recently. It's a perfect time to say it again. We must never expect or receive glory that belongs to God. These first three points just really go together, don't they? We must not allow ourselves to think it's okay to need people to think highly of us. God knows what our needs are. That's why he encourages us to encourage and and honor one another. As Chris said this morning, he was exactly right. Outdo one another in honor for one another, Romans tells us. But he also tells us, you let another man praise you, not your own lips. We are praise seekers. We constantly, even like the stuff I say, you want to know, am I, am I guilty of this? How many times do you check when you put something on Facebook or Instagram or whatever? How many times do you check to see how many people liked it? Well, look, we are a long way, but it's been this way for 2,000 years. We are a long way from the life that we are called to live in Christ. Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. And united with him, we are called to be conduits of glory. Just put, give all the praise to the Lord. And again, God knows your need, and so he's going to have another believer come along and say, thank you so much for doing what you did. That really meant a lot to me. This is good. That's good. But don't be seeking it on your own. Do you remember the danger of the inner ring from last week's message? C.S. Lewis talked about that inner ring. Once you get inside, you'll do anything to stay there. It's surprising how quickly we can move from a heart that longs to please God to a heart that longs and, and, and desperately needs the praise of man. If we let up even for just a short time, we're done. <laughs> Remember, the Pharisees started out with good intentions. 
and with hearts that longed to please the Lord. But pride got the better of them, and they missed who Jesus was because they were so... Somebody criticized Jesus, and the others were like, yeah, that's a good word there, buddy. And they're all about it. They missed who Jesus was. That's the focus of the fourth point. As we approach Scripture, we should always expect to encounter Jesus. John 5.39 is a verse you need to memorize. Think about this verse for just a moment. John 5.39. We think, because I've got it all figured out, because I know more than other people do, because I do these things, we have eternal life, and God's saying, they're all pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Pharisees made heroes of the individuals in the Old Testament, which surely contributed to their missing that all Scripture points to Jesus. To be even more precise, all Scripture points to the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which, of course, points to the Father's love for sinners in sending His Son to die for sin. That's the focus of the final point. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day will protect us from moralistic, therapeutic deism. Christian Smith coined this term many years ago. I think David, a year or two ago, gave like the five points of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, it's the belief that there is a God who created us and who wants us to be nice to one another so that we can be happy people, which is, of course, the, 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 the ultimate goal of life. This belief assumes that good people go to heaven. The Pharisees were moralistic, therapeutic deists. Good people go to heaven. What about bad people? Well, in our day, moralistic, therapeutic deists don't like to think about hell. Unfortunately, for those who deny it, Jesus was quite willing to talk about judgment and hell for those who refuse to believe. He talked about it a lot. And it was in-your-face kind of talking. I'm not saying go out and do that. You know, start preaching on the corners. But I'm telling you, Jesus was very direct. About it. When we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we are reminded of the truth that we have absorbed today in John 5. Many people assume when you speak of the gospel, you refer only to the plan of salvation. But the gospel goes so far beyond the understanding of how to be saved. It points to our union with Christ and it reminds us that we are both helpless and hopeless apart from all that Jesus did for us. And if we do not abide in Christ as the vine, as the branches abide in the vine, we will be unable to produce any meaningful fruit. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day protects us from trusting in our own works and in our own wisdom and seeking glory from others so that we might be affirmed in our own minds and feel like, yeah, okay, I think other people think that's good, so I must be good. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day turns our focus upward and inward instead of, uh, excuse me, upward and outward instead of inward. 
causing us to die to ourselves every day and to live for the Lord by living for others. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day reminds us that the life of a disciple is a cross-centered life. And the more we live a cross-centered life, the more we will be like Jesus. Back to where we began.